Well, if you have your uh, Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 6. Luke, chapter 6. Uh, this morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to consider verses 12 through 26. So Luke, chapter 6, we'll begin reading at verse 12, and we'll read down uh, to the end of verse 26. This is the Word of God. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you. And reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Before we consider the import of these words this morning, let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, this morning, even with the, with the announcements that we shared, we realize that there are many reasons to rejoice, and there are also people that we need to remember because they are going through difficult times and circumstances and trials. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you will uh, be at work in the lives of every one of your children. Father, I pray that you will enable us to rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are such an omnicompetent being that you are able to uh, relate to every individual in exactly the circumstances of their lives and with exactly their personalities and emotions and thoughts and all that makes them who they are as a unique individual before you. And Father, we marvel 
that you are able to intimately and perfectly relate to every one of your children, all of the variety of their circumstances. And Father, we pray that regardless of whether it is in sadness or gladness today, I pray that you will draw your people to yourself, that you will comfort and strengthen where that is required, uh, that you will give people a higher view of their Savior, Jesus. And Father, I pray that you will continue to work to wean us away from the things of this world. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will continue to purify us. We acknowledge and we confess that uh, we are far too often and far too pervasively uh, religious in the sense of uh, just engaging in activities rather than in engaging with you, the living God. I pray that this morning, through your word and by your spirit, you will bring us to see more clearly than ever before who we are and who our Savior Jesus Christ is. Help us to focus on him. Help us to see him. And Lord, help us to embrace and receive all that he is and then to go and live a life which is fitting in response to what Jesus has done for us. Be with us, we pray. Open your word to us, bless it to our hearts, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now there are uh, obviously a lot of things uh, that we could say about this text, and so we don't have time uh, to unpack all of it. I just want to give you just a few things uh, to think about uh, from the passage, and that's going to be increasingly the pattern, I think, as we work through Acts, or we're not working through Acts, Luke also wrote Acts. I'm going to tell you. This, I'm going to tell you now, in case you weren't in Sunday school. Uh, in Sunday school, I was sharing, you know, my my tale of woe that uh, my my youngest daughter is sick, uh, the bad cough, and woke herself up multiple times through the night coughing. And as a parent, when your child wakes up coughing, they also wake you up with their coughing. And I wasn't able to really settle back down and fall asleep. So, so I, I feel the the effects of sleeplessness, and uh, you know I'm not that bright at the best of times, and so then when I'm sort of plunged into the fog of you know lack of sleep, my my cognitive processes kind of just shut down. So this morning, if I'm reading Luke and talking about Luke, and the word axe just pops out of my mouth. Like, that's probably going to be the norm, okay? So there might be, you might need to pay a little bit more careful attention this morning than normal. So wait a minute, I don't think that quite fit. Yeah, it probably didn't, okay? Uh, so I just need to, you can, I'm not going to apologize every time I say something like that, the wrong word uh, comes out. But I also said in Sunday school, one of the things that amazes me is that in this text, we're told that Jesus prayed all night. He was awake all night praying. And yet, presumably, he was also able to function the next day. You know, that's not my experience. You know, if I'm up all night, I don't function well the next day, but Jesus could. Uh, and part of the question, though, for me when I was thinking about this is, coughing, a, a coughing child will keep me awake. But obviously prayer kept Jesus awake. Jesus prayed. Jesus was someone who addressed himself to God the Father in prayer. And I think that this is one of those just very obvious things in the text. We're not told, you should go and pray too. 
Jesus doesn't say to his disciples the next day, now I want you to know I spent all of last night in prayer, so that's kind of a sign that prayer is important for you too. He doesn't always connect the dots for us. He expects us to be able to see certain things on our own. He is our teacher in his words, but he's also our teacher in his model and example. And the fact that Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, felt it necessary to spend large amounts of time in prayer to God the Father is a rather obvious message to us. That we need to be people of prayer. I'm not suggesting that, you know, tonight you need to stay up all night praying. But when you look at the prayer life of Jesus and you compare it with your own, what is your prayer life like? What's it like? And obviously, I don't know the answer to that. But is it a couple minutes a day? Is it sort of ongoing and regular? Has it been a long time since you've taken time to pray? I mean, do, do you think that prayer is something you can do in the course of a day? Or has it been so long that it doesn't really even occur to you that you could spend this block of time, you know, not watching TV or surfing the internet or texting or whatever, but you could actually spend this block of time seeking the Lord in prayer? Why did Jesus pray? You know, you would think that if anyone didn't have to, it would be him. If anyone didn't need to seek God the Father's face in prayer, it would be the Son of God incarnate. So, so why is it that Jesus prays? And again, we're not told, but in Luke's gospel, when we're told that Jesus spent time in prayer, it's often at significant moments in terms of salvation history and in terms of his ministry. So here we're told he spent all night in prayer, and it's before, out of his numerous disciples or followers, he picks 12, designating them as his special representatives, the apostles. So there's more than 12 disciples. There are a ton of disciples. But out of that group, Jesus picks 12 to be his special authoritative representatives. And before Jesus makes that decision, he spends all night in prayer. In other words, picking leadership is not something that Jesus does by saying, well, how many vacancies do we have next year? We need to make sure we get that number of bodies. Quick, throw out some names and let's decide right now. He prays, Lord, who do you want? Who should I choose? Who have you already appointed for that position? Lord, lead me and guide me. Get me on your agenda. And so we see that with in Luke's gospel. Luke very carefully portrays Jesus as someone who seeks the will of God before major decisions in terms of ministry, before critical junctures in his ministry here on earth. But to me, honestly, that doesn't explain praying all night. I don't think you can pray all night if that's your only motivation. I don't think you can really passionately seek God that way if your only motivation is function. Today sometimes, it can become almost a cliche, but today sometimes people talk about um, seeking God's face and not just his hand. I think this this is a beautiful way of looking at our relationship with God in prayer. How often in prayer do we just seek God's hand? That is, we ask him to do something that we want done. So we try to get God aligned on our agenda. Lord, here's what's going on. This is what I think should happen. You're the one who can get it done. How about you act and do it? 
We seek God's hand. And it's proper to do that, recognizing his transcendent will, aligning ourselves to his will and desire. So we do seek and ask God to do things. We seek his hand. But more than that, we seek his face. We seek that relationship. What he does for us is not the reason we go to him. In the same way that as a parent, it would be very, very grievous if your children didn't love you, but were still always coming to you so that you would do things for them. You know, and as a parent, if I knew that my children only ever came to me when they wanted something, but they never came to me for me. That is, they never just wanted to spend time with me. It was never just an expression of their love. If there was no intimacy there, if I was simply sort of the person in their life who they would come to ask to do things for them, it would obviously show that we didn't have a very good relationship. But they seek, in a proper relationship, children seek their parents to do things for them because there is that connectivity, that relationship, that love, that intimacy. And so Jesus can spend all night praying to God, looking for direction, looking for God to accomplish things in his purposes and power. But it's more than function. It's it's intimacy. It's a relationship. Jesus is simply relating to God the Father. He is spending time with his Father. He is talking to his Father. He loves his Father. And that's the key to prayer. The key to prayer is love, loving God, wanting to know him better, wanting to immerse yourself in his presence. Because if it's just a laundry list of things we want him to do, you can speed through that list in a matter of minutes. Jesus could very easily have said, Father, I need to pick disciples. Give me wisdom. I know you will. I'm off to bed. He said, Lord, I need to pick apostles. God, Father, guide me, lead me, direct me. But Jesus doesn't just rush out of God's presence. He wants to stay there. He wants to live in that sphere. It's not duty and obligation. It's love and relationship. And in this, as in all things, Jesus sets us the example. This is what we ought to be like when it comes to prayer to God. I wonder if many of us... Uh, have really insufficient prayer lives because we've used prayer as a means to an end. That is, we've used prayer as a tool to leverage God to do for us what we want to see done, rather than actually just loving the privilege of being in the presence of our Father. Jesus spent all night in prayer. And then in the morning... He took some of his disciples, his followers, and he designated 12 of them to be his apostles. And this is an incredible list. In this list, you have sort of radical diversity, which just shows the unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we already saw in Luke's gospel how Jesus called a tax collector. We had mentioned that tax collectors were considered traitors to Israel. Uh, they were considered collaborators, you know, with the pagan evil empire, the occupying power, Rome. And so tax collectors were seen as being sort of traitors and turncoats who were helping the enemies of Israel and Israel's God keep the people suppressed. 
Now, in response to this, there was a lot of people who, there was a lot of responses in Israel to the Romans. One group were referred to as the Zealots. And the Zealots believed that they should mobilize the people into an armed uprising, not because they believed they were strong enough to defeat Rome. They knew they weren't. But they believed if the righteous would rebel and take up arms against Rome, then God would be forced to intervene to rescue his children. And it was sort of a a big step of faith in terms of battle. We can't defeat the Romans, but God can. And so we will take up arms, we'll resist them, we'll rebel, and then God will come and God will wipe them out. We can't do it, but we'll show that we trust that God can. The zealots hated the Romans and were willing to do anything that it took to see them defeated. In this group of 12 apostles, you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You could not put those two guys in the same room for any length of time at all without guaranteeing that one of them wasn't coming out. Unless you put them in that room together with Jesus. Unless Jesus was at work to teach them and train them and mold them and shape them, these are two people who were so far different in terms of ideology and background and life that you could, it was just, it was oil and water. You could never bring these people together, ever. But in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, zealot nor tax collector, slave nor free, male nor female. There is a radical unity that Jesus creates through his saving power in the gospel. Uh, The church is the most beautiful thing in all of the world. Uh, The church is the most beautiful thing in all of the world because in the church, the wisdom of God is revealed that he can break down every dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he can also obliterate every political and economic and sociological distinction you can imagine. All of that is left behind when people are called to follow Jesus Christ and spend time with him. There's nothing else like that. It's an incredible thing. This list is also interesting, though, because in it you have Judas, who becomes a traitor. And I think that although there's a lot that can be said about this, one of the things that is essential for us to see is that you can be called by Jesus, and you can spend time with Jesus, and you can be part of Jesus' circle of people, and yet not know Jesus at all. In other words, here is one person who's going to spend all of his life over the next couple of years with Jesus. And he's going to spend his time with all of Jesus' disciples, with this inner group of 12 apostles. And he is going to be the one who betrays Jesus. He is not someone who knows Christ. He is not someone who loves Christ. This is a great warning, I think, for all time. Listen, you can be someone who's exposed to the Bible. You can be part of a church community. You can be part of a small group. You can be part of, you know, whatever. And you can name the name of Jesus all day long and not know him. Or perhaps more importantly, on the day of judgment, he may not know you. How can that be? It can only be because external realities never change our hearts. 
You can put people in, in positions of leadership in a church. It doesn't change their heart. You can, you can read the Bible all day long. It doesn't change your heart. You can sing songs and even feel moved emotionally, and it doesn't change your heart. The only thing that changes your heart is receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then walking in step with the Spirit for life transformation. It's something which happens internally. And when the inside is changed, then the external relationships begin to change too. But too often we reverse that. We just think if we can just change the outside, if we can just do the right things, then the inside changes. And that's just not true. Real transformation can only ever come from the inside out. And Judas is a reminder of that. The the danger of always being associated with Jesus, always being around the people of Jesus, but not actually knowing Jesus personally in a saving way. And another thing that strikes me about this group, which I'm actually very thankful for, is that every single one of these people betrays incredible weaknesses and faults and folly and sin. This is not an all-star team. If you work through the Gospels and you begin to see some of the things these people say, some of the things these people do, you know, the number of times Jesus needs to rebuke them, and then even beyond the ascension, when you think that they should know better after Pentecost and all of the rest, you still have Paul and Galatians saying, I had to rebuke Peter publicly, you know, because he was acting like a hypocrite. You know, and in a strange, strange way, I find that very comforting. Because he doesn't call people who are strong. He calls people who are weak. And it is only when they recognize their weakness, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's only when people, when you recognize your weaknesses that you'll actually have any strength. And so he doesn't, he doesn't give us a list and say, now notice, no one was smarter than Peter. And no one was godlier than James. And no one was more merciful than Simon. It's just, no, it's, it's imperfect people. And that's the great hope for all of us. That's a, that's our hope here in this church, right? Is, it, is that the Lord is still in the business of calling foolish and weak and insignificant people. And he brings them to himself and then fills them with gifts and fills them with power so that no one can possibly think the source of the good is in them. That is, it's not intrinsic to them. No one can say, well, I can never serve the Lord because I'm just not like that fantastic group of people. You know, they just sort of walk on water all by themselves. No, it's regular people and weak people and foolish people and evil people that Jesus saves. And then he goes to work in their lives and he begins to meld them together so that this group of people with nothing but the gospel and the Holy Spirit. This group of people will be the foundation of a movement that literally has transformed the face of the earth in 2,000 years. That's what they could do, not because of who they were, but because of who Jesus was and what he did through them by the Holy Spirit. And that means, frankly, for us, 
here, we are setting our sights far, far, far too low. If we are setting our sights on just surviving and being relatively mediocre and just being another congregation that has sort of slightly apathetic services or whatever, we are called to much more than that. You know, we are called to embrace our weakness so that the power of Christ can be made visible to the world. And the only thing that stops that is us refusing to acknowledge how weak we are. You know, it's us still clinging to the strength of our programs or the strength of our, you know, whatever we think we're good at. And so I say, well, let's play to our strengths. You know, what are we good at? What are we good at? The truth is, we're not good enough at anything. But no one is so weak that the Holy Spirit of God can't transform the world through them. So why Paul says, if you want me to boast, I will gladly boast about the things I'm weak at. If you want me to boast, I will glory in my weakness. Because it is not a cliche. When I am weak, then, as a philosopher you could add, and only then am I strong. When I am weak, then and only then am I strong. And our problem is we want to be strong. We don't want to acknowledge our weakness. And that forecloses the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our midst because we'll take credit for it. Of course, we, don't, we expect to grow and be blessed when we're good at what we do. But it's only when we acknowledge our weakness that the power of the Spirit will really be at work evidently in our lives. And this fits with what Jesus says when he comes down from the crowd, or he comes down and he talks to the crowd. Uh, there's a real large crowd of his disciples and a large number of other people. And then in verse 20, we're told that he gives this message. He's looking at his disciples, looking at this big mixed crowd. He says, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Now you can't help but notice, even if you don't notice anything else, that that is about exactly the diametric opposite of what our world would say in terms of blessedness. It is exactly the opposite. Our whole society is predicated on capitalistic greed. Our whole society is predicated on getting more for self. Make no mistake. I, 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 listen, I'm not, I'm not going to you know, speak to economics. I don't know anything about it. But I do know something a little bit about the human heart. And I will tell you, in all of the discussions that I see taking place, you know, between capitalists and socialists and communists and all the rest, everything that I see is that fundamentally it all boils down to greed. How can I get more for me? And I don't care what your system is. The whole, the whole system is based on personal gain. The whole system is as self-centered as can possibly be. And it doesn't even matter what the system is. It's all generated from the same heart. That's, the, that's what people don't understand. It's, why, is every, why is every nation in a mess? Well, because the same heart problem is in every nation. This self-centeredness 
and greed. But the words of Jesus here are, are categorically the opposite of what we're taught in society. So you can take courses and read books on how to win friends and influence people. Which basically means that, you know, you, you go in and out of purely crass selfishness, you figure out how to manipulate them into liking you so that they will do more for you, you know, so that in the end it'll benefit you. Instead of actually going and figuring out how you can bless someone. You know, so, so now we, we even, we, we sort of even messed up charity. You know, so that we'll use charity to, to get a reputation for being charitable. You know, or we'll be nice to people looking for payback or whatever. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Now, I take it that what he says here is actually right. Blessed are you who are poor. That's what he said and that's what he meant. So how do we understand poverty here? And I say this as someone who should recognize that in the history of the world, I would easily be in the top 1% of the wealthiest people who have ever existed, and that in global terms around the world today, I would at least be in the top 1% or 2% of the richest people on the face of the earth. See, our problem is anyone who's not ultra, like, like sickeningly rich in our society looks at those people who are and says, they're the rich. I'll tell you, I've spent enough time in Africa to know that everyone in Africa thinks that everyone in North America is that filthy rich. Because compared to them, we all are. We live, Canada is a little tiny gated community of ultra-rich people in global terms. You just need to accept that. If you are in this room, you are one of the richest people who has ever lived in the history of the world. So, blessed are you who are poor. That includes, this is something we all need to listen to. Why? What does poverty mean here? Well, probably there are three things you could sort of hang on it. One is that in the Old Testament, in the prophets, the poor were righteous considered to be righteous because they were being exploited by the rich. In certain times in the history of Israel, the rich became rich through exploitation and injustice. So, in a general sense, in certain the prophets come along and say, woe to you who are rich, who are multiplying houses and multiplying possessions and laying around on the fanciest furniture while people starve at your front door. You're grinding them into the ground. You have all of your, your closets full of shoes because, you know, you're stealing from the person who has nothing. And so the, the prophets would denounce the rich because they were rich through exploitation. They were rich through unjust gain. So that the poor became sort of synonymous with the oppressed, the downtrodden, the righteous. In Luke's gospel, and also in the other gospels, but predominantly in Luke, you're also told that oftentimes riches keeps people from seeing their need of God. So that it really is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is. Jesus meant it when he said that. It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the poor are people who are more likely to see their need of God because they're dependent. They're not independent. They need their daily bread. 
They need God to provide for them. But also the poor, as he speaks to his disciples, are probably also those who have left everything to follow him. Remember, we've seen that in, in the gospel so far. To be a disciple is to leave everything and follow him. And if you've left everything, then you don't have anything. You've made yourself poor to follow Jesus. So Jesus says, you who are poor in these contexts, yours is the kingdom of God. You are entering into God's rule and reign now and also in the future. You who are hungry and weeping, and this speaks to those who are not satisfied in this world, not satisfied with what the world can provide. Even if you gain the whole world, it wouldn't be enough. And it's people who, who have this driving hunger for more of God, for more of what's significant, for more of what counts. And they weep. And, and why would it be blessed to weep? I think it's because partly if, if you understand the world at all, at all, I don't care if you're an optimist or a pessimist, but there has to be, there have got to be times when your heart breaks when you look around at the world. And not just the humanitarian tragedies, as terrible as those are, as heart-rending as those are, but when you just look around and, and the defamation of the holy name of God that takes place in so many places, so constantly and so flagrantly, it is not right. And those who are righteous should be moved passionately by sin and injustice in our world. And they see the structures of sin, the greed and the self-centeredness, the neglect of the neighbor, the hatred towards the enemy, and the total lack of concern with the glory of God in this world. The righteous should be a people who weep and who mourn when they see these things. And the promises are that if you hunger for more of God, and if your heart is broken for the sin and the injustice and the intolerable nature of having a world created for the glory of God where people do not esteem and honor Him, then you are blessed. In the end, you will enter into glory. You will rejoice. You will be filled. You will receive the kingdom of God. And you are also blessed when people hate you. You're blessed when people exclude you. You're blessed when people reject your name as evil. Very important qualification. Not because you're a jerk, but because of the Son of Man. Because there are a lot of people who have a sort of a false persecution complex. They think that, you know, they're always persecuted because of righteousness. They're not persecuted because of righteousness. They're persecuted because they're not very nice people. But here Jesus says, listen, you can tell a lot about how righteous someone is by the people who don't like them. You can tell a lot about how righteous someone is by their enemies. And if someone doesn't have any enemies whatsoever for the Son of Man, it's almost certainly because they're not really living for the Son of Man. They're not doing what they need to do in this world. They're not saying what they need to say. If no one hates you for Jesus' sake... When the world hated Jesus, then how much really can you be like him? They say, oh, when the true prophets came, the people hated them. They locked them up. They martyred them. 
you can tell a lot about how righteous someone is and how faithful they are in witness on the basis of whether or not anyone gets mad at them for what they say when they're representing the truth of the Son of Man. Great is your reward in heaven, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. If you're living for this world, you really, really better enjoy it, because this is it. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. You know, if you're so at home in this world order that it never bothers you, that there's never any brokenness, everything's just okay for you because you're doing fine for yourself, then your heart is not in the right place before God. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. What were the false prophets like? Well, they were politicking. They were always maneuvering in the corridors of power. They were manipulative. Probably the thing that summarized their message more than anything else was that they said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And then they said, God comes and and rebukes the people and the false prophets. And the great condemnation of the false prophets is they do not treat my people's wound as if it is serious. In other words, they say soft things. You know, they're, they're, they're really good at, at weaving stories and jokes into sort of a moralistic message, which always comes out being, you're okay. You can improve a little bit, sure. But you're okay. Have you ever read the prophets? You ever actually, I mean, like, like seriously read, you know, from Isaiah to the New Testament. The denunciations, the wrath, the, the focus, the energy that the prophets have in pointing to evil and calling a spade a spade. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter how much power they have. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, a religious professional. It doesn't matter if they have, you know, in our context, we say it doesn't matter if they have leadership in the church. It doesn't matter if they have political power. It doesn't matter how much they give financially. The prophets call the spade a spade. And there are a bunch of people who are saying, hey, you're supposed to revolve your life around me. You know, I want you to show up, show up. I want you to say this, you say it. I don't want you to say that, you don't say it. And the prophet showed up and said, we're not here for you, we're here for God. And we're going to figure out how to serve God, and we're going to teach the truth of God. And, and you need, one of the lessons that you need to learn is that not everyone is at your beck and call to show up when you want them to show up and say what you want them to say. There's a message from God, and it's fire and sword. False prophets. No, they, they knew how to win friends and influence people. They, they knew how to, how to work the system. They knew how to work the crowd. They knew when to show up. Not because they cared about anyone, but because they knew how to schmooze. In pastoral circles, we call it networking. You know, we're going to figure out how to, we're going to network. It means we're going to get together and I'm going to pretend to care about you so I can get something for you later. You know, with the reality, except for Sam. When Sam networks, he's sincere, right, Sam? Just, just, sorry. Yeah, Sam always wants to go network places. Anyway, uh, he, he really doesn't. Sam's a great guy. He's not like that. But woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Woe to you. And the word for woe doesn't mean this is slightly unfortunate. The word for woe means, it really, almost translated as like, deep misery is upon you. Deep misery is upon you if everyone speaks well of you. Because you can't actually represent the truth of God in a broken world like this and have everyone like you. It's not going to happen. 
it is not going to happen because the message of God, it binds up, it heals, it comforts, but it also tears down. It exposes our hearts. It shows our weakness. It is only when we see our weakness morally and all of the rest that Jesus will begin to build us up. So let's be those people. Let's be those people who allows the word of God to speak with all of its strength and fire and vigor, knowing that it's a double-edged sword. It cuts and it heals. And embrace weakness. And embrace the brokenness so that Jesus can knit us together as a community of people who are really blessed, doing far more than we could ever imagine he could, could possibly be done on our own. And remember this morning as we celebrate communion that this table to the world is the greatest sign of weakness that there is. Here is a remembrance of a rejected, hated, crucified, failed religious leader in the eyes of the world. And this is a sign of folly and foolishness and weakness. And all of the ones who would follow this person are fools and weak too. That's the view of the world. We say with Paul that in the cross, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. In the cross, the weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. And in this table, we see how inadequate we were. The only thing that matters, our relationship with God. How strong are we? If Jesus did not break his body and shed his blood for us, we would never be able to stand before God. This is my strength, the blood of the Savior. This is how adequate I am, the crucified Lamb of God. This tells me how weak I am and to embrace it and receive eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you are a visitor here this morning and your faith is in Jesus, if you're trusting in him as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to participate in these things with us. If you're here this morning and you, you frankly, you're not trusting in God, you don't know what it means to know Jesus, we ask you just respectfully let these elements pass you by. You can stay and observe, but these things are for those children and followers of Jesus, those who have recognized their weakness and their sin and have embraced him for eternal life. I'm going to ask the men to come forward. Uh, now we're going to help distribute these elements, and in a few moments we'll celebrate communion together.